While you find your way back to your seats, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 15. If you don't have one and you want one, there should be copies on the back table. You can feel free to grab one and use it. In fact, you can keep that, take it with you. We'd love for you to have it. Well, friends, we've made it to the end of Romans. Um, And I say that to say we've got two more weeks after this in Romans. But basically, the 16th chapter of Romans, which we'll spend two weeks in, is Paul's way of, of telling the Romans about a bunch of individual people that they should trust, that they should say hi to, that they should give a hug to. His kind of way of saying, uh, I want to see all these people. I think they're good people. You should embrace them for me. But at the end of chapter 15, this is really the end of what Paul is writing in the meat of his letter. In other words, this is the, this is the, the last thing he wants to leave them with. Uh, and we'll find out as we read in a second that ultimately a big part of writing this letter has been that he wants to use the church at Rome as a springboard uh, for ministry into uh, the region of Spain. And Paul finally gets to that reality here at the end of chapter 15. And I find it so interesting as he ends this letter that he finds his way here. And so I want to read this with you. Romans chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 14. I'll read all the way uh, to the end of the chapter. Paul writes, I myself am convinced, uh, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, competent to instruct one another. Uh, Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. By the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God, so from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no more places for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to come visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased uh, to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jewish spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them also their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea, and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there, so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with all of you. Amen. And so Paul ends the content of his letter before he greets a bunch of people in the next chapter. 
Let me just roll through this historically very quickly. And then I think there are three things that we can see from the life of Paul uh, that are great models for us in thinking about mission reimagined uh, based on the gospel this morning. So here's Paul again writing this letter probably from Corinth. And he's desperate to get to Rome because he's never been there, but he's heard great things about the church, wants to minister there, wants to visit with them, wants to know them, and ultimately wants to use them uh, for mission that's going to go west towards Spain. Basically, in Paul's mind, he's done all that he can do in the regions uh, where he's been, up in, in Asia, in like modern-day Turkey, Greece, uh, and, and those areas. And so now he finally can get on to this other thing that apparently has been in his mind and in his heart, but we sort of never heard about in the life of Paul. And so he talks about wanting to get to Rome, but not being able to because he felt committed to the calling he had, but now that's fulfilled so he can go. But he's got this one last thing he's got to do. See, Paul, in every stop he's been going to, has been collecting money to take back to Jerusalem. And you can read about that in lots of his letters where he refers back to this offering. Basically, um, the, the Christian, the church in Jerusalem that's come out of the Jewish religion uh, is undergoing lots of persecution and there's lots of poverty there. And so Paul sees, as you read all throughout Scripture, to, to be frank, a need for the church to come together to support those who can't support themselves. And so as the gospel is going forth, one of the very first uh, ramifications on that in the life of people is to give of their abundance to support those who they've never met. But yet, if that faith hadn't at first existed, theirs would never have. This is Paul's kind of rationale and how it works. And so he's collected this big offering, but he's going to Jerusalem. And Paul's excited about this, but you can also read, as you, as you heard, he's extremely nervous about this because it's not a safe place for someone like him to be. And we'll find out that Paul's intention to go from Jerusalem to Rome is not going to happen the way he thought it would. He's going to get imprisoned. He's going to get arrested. He's going to make it to Rome, but as a prisoner. And this talk about Spain is never going to come to fruition because Paul will die uh, as a Roman prisoner at the hands of Nero. But this is Paul's heart. And so I think in it, there's things that we can pull out for us as we think about this concept of mission that is really, really important for us to understand. I need to pause before we start and remind you, at Hope, when we speak about mission, it purposely we leave off the S. Right? A lot of you are used to hearing about missions. And missions is great, but for most of us, when we think about missions, we think about something that happens away from us. Uh, either in another culture halfway around the world, or in another community, or in another state, and all of that is good, and we don't leave off the S to take away from that. We support that. We're, in, we're invested and involved in, in ministry around uh, this state, and around this country, and around this world, but one of the unfortunate realities that has happened in the church when we've talked about missions is we've forgotten that we are supposed to live on mission here, too. And so when we think about missions as other, we forget that we're supposed to be on mission too. So we've taken this very, I don't know, very simple process and just said we're just going to call it mission. Because we understand that some are on mission by staying and some are on mission by going. And we need all of it to accomplish what God intends for us to do. In other words, what you are called to do 
here is just as important as what called me from another part to come here and do. What you are doing here is just as important as what people are doing around the world. The reality is, at what level are we being obedient to the call on our life? And there's where I want to land this morning in hearing what Paul is talking about to us. So like a good preacher, I've got three points and they all start with the letter B. That really ha- rarely happens, but it fell into place for me today. So we need to talk about boldness, we need to talk about boasting, and we need to talk about big dreams. Because these are the three things that just came jumping off uh, the pages of this text to me during the course of this week as I thought about it. First thing is boldness. Paul writes uh, to this audience and says to them, listen, I've been bold to you about some of these things. Did you catch that one uh, at the beginning of it when we started to read? I understand uh, that you're good, uh, that you're filled with knowledge, in fact, that you're probably competent to instruct one another. You probably didn't even need me to write these things to you. You probably are already mature enough in your faith where you can teach each other. Uh, it's an established church, of course. And he writes in verse 15, yet I have written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace that God has given to me. And then he goes on the rest of this chapter to use the word gospel about a million times, right? Because the thing that he's bold about is the gospel. So when we talk about boldness, the first thing that we need to understand is we're talking about the centrality of the gospel. And you might say, well, of course. But you need to understand that it is bold to make the gospel the center. It's very easy to make religion the center. It's very easy to make ceremonies and programs and traditions the center. It is bold to make the gospel the center. The gospel is grace. Grace is always bold because it is against everything that's within us so often, isn't it? We see things happen and we want to react against them in a certain way. The gospel is bold. And it's even more bold of Paul to write a huge letter here and have it all be about the gospel that this church has already accepted. I remind you again that the church at Rome already followers of Jesus. This letter isn't written to people to convince them to follow Jesus. They already have decided to do that. And yet Paul writes this completely as if they've never heard the gospel before. Because for him to remind them about it again is so critically important. It's a bold thing to do. Have you ever, um, your, t- your favorite TV show is on, and you go to watch it, you- you've got everything set, you've got your work done in time, uh, you've got the house clean, you've got the kids to bed early, and you go to watch the TV show, and it's a rerun from last week. Is there anything more annoying in this, this universe, right? But this is sort of what Paul's doing, right? Oh, we're getting a letter from Paul. Wait a minute, it's the gospel again, right? It's bold to do that because what Paul is saying to them is, guess what? You don't need anything else. So many of us believe that, okay, the gospel, we've received it and we enter into this, Christ, this thing called Christian faith and now we're on to the bigger things. Friends, let me let you in on a secret the bigger things are just the deeper things of the gospel. They're not other things. 
We're not adding things on to the top of it. We're coming to believe it and to receive it and to hold on to it in a far deeper way than we could have ever imagined. A boldness to make the gospel the center. And then maybe this is even more specifically what Paul's talking about. A boldness to declare that your life changes when you make the gospel the center. That there are actually implications on your life if the gospel is the center. And so we have everything from the beginning of chapter 12 to this point that Paul's writing about. If the gospel is the center, it's going to change how you think about unity. It's going to change how you think about love. It's going to change how you think about authority. It's going to change how you think about acceptance. It's going to change how you deal with people on disagreements in gray areas. Ultimately, if the gospel is the center, what you're going to do is open your life up to whatever God intends for you to do with it. That the implications on your life because of the gospel is what it means to live the Christian life. So many of us have taken Christianity as a thing that we add on. Okay, I've received Jesus, and now here is a code of conduct, as it were, and I need to learn how to do all of these things so that I can honor God in my life. And I just want to suggest to you this morning that that's not what God intended. The intent of God through the work of Jesus is that you would be so affected by the gospel in your life that it would change your orientation towards God and that the natural outflow of it would be a change in how you live. I don't add on Christianity. I am transformed by Jesus. Do you see the difference? It's a bold teaching that your life is affected by this reality. It's not just a set of intellectual beliefs that you accept about Jesus. It's a whole new way of looking at the world and ultimately a return to looking at God as who he is and ourselves in our current state of affairs. And it changes us radically. So perhaps Paul this morning would say to us as he concludes this letter to us, how would you rate yourself in boldness in making the gospel the center thing? Has something else crowded it out? Has something else found the center ground and pushed the gospel to the exterior? Has religion or tradition or Christianity, as it were, pushed the gospel out? Have you tried to add on faith rather than be transformed by Jesus to see an increase of faith? And then he might even go a step further and say, how would you rate yourself in terms of boldness in making this gospel known? And not just to people who don't know Jesus. How would you rate yourself in boldness in making it known to people who do know Jesus? When someone comes to you struggling in their marriage, a friend, and says, here's what I'm facing, what's the first thing you turn to? The best advice that you have? Or the gospel? Out of which comes great advice. When you find yourself in a predicament at work, What's the first thing that runs through your mind? How do I get around this or the gospel? See, it's not just about teaching the gospel to each other. It's about preaching it to yourself. 
Do you have the kind of boldness in relationships that would go back to the first thing and never leave it? The centrality of the gospel. There's unbelievable power in that reality. Unbelievable power to heal. uh, Unbelievable power to change course. Unbelievable power to alter course. Unbelievable power to reorient us when we make the gospel the center thing. And not just on the periphery. Boldness. The second thing that I find so interesting about this in in terms of Paul's boldness is he has a boldness to live into his calling. Paul uses the phrase, the grace God has given to me. And that phrase really is speaking about the specific assignment, uh, the, the special privilege, the duty, the responsibility, and therefore the authority that God has given Paul. And he kind of extrapolates it as it goes on here in talking about the fact that he's been giving, given a calling to go to the Gentiles and to make Jesus known, to ultimately go to places where Jesus is not known and make him known. Paul's very specific calling. And Paul goes for it with boldness, doesn't he? If you remember Paul's story, he is a Pharisee. And so basically what that means is he is a Jewish religious scholar. And that's as much of a career path as you're on a career path now. And Paul basically sets that completely aside when he meets Jesus on this road to Damascus and alters his entire life's course in a new way. And it doesn't get more bold than that. And to add to it, Paul's going into unknown situations. I would wager to guess that many of these places Paul had never been before. And I'm certain he knows when he teaches the message he's going to teach, not only is it going to incite people, but it's going to put him in grave danger. Not simply uh, in terms of Jewish rebellion, but ultimately in terms of Roman political authority. They didn't like anyone talking about anyone as king And all Paul does is talk about Jesus as king. That's a complete affront to Caesar, as it were. And yet Paul in boldness is all for it. Living into his calling. Willing to set aside personal ambition. Willing to set aside a personal resume to follow his calling. And so maybe the question that he would ask us this morning... How would you rate yourself in terms of boldness in following your calling? And you might say, well, I'm I'm not calling. I'm not called to be a pastor or called to be a, a missionary. And most people understand calling very simply in those terms. And I want to suggest to you that that's an errant way to understand calling. I believe that each of you have a very specific calling from God. And I believe it's one of my chief objectives as your pastor to help you understand it and to give you everything you need to go for it hard. For some of you, it might take you to places other than here. For most of you, you're going to be doing what you're doing, but for a new purpose. How would you rate your boldness in going hard after your calling? Well, you might say, well, what is my calling? There's two things, really, you can understand this. One, we have a universal calling. Therefore, it's a calling that we all share together. Jesus says right before he ascends to heaven, 
uh, that you're going to go and make disciples. That's a universal calling. We all share that calling together. In other words, we're going to help people know Jesus and grow in Jesus. We all share that calling. How would you rate your boldness in going for that? But then we have a unique calling that I just alluded to moments ago. Each of us is specially designed, specially wired to accomplish unique things for the kingdom of God. And I believe that, I really do with all of my heart, that each of us have a very specific and special calling, a unique way that we personally make disciples. Sure, we're all supposed to make disciples, but we don't all do it the same way. Some people are in front of people, people. Some people are behind the scenes, people. Some people are relational people. Some people are not relational people. Some people are, you know, type A, and some people are not. And we are all wired differently. We have this universal call, but we all have a unique flavor and way in which we're called to do it. And for so long, I think um, Christian faith or the church or even society institution have been forcing us all into a cattle shoot, as it were, that we would all go after things in the same way. And what I want to open up to you as a possibility this morning is that's not how God intends it to be. We have this shared calling, but you have personal uniqueness, and your family has personal uniqueness, and there's unique ways in which you can accomplish that. Peter went to Jews, and Paul went to Gentiles. Barnabas was an encourager. Timothy was a pastor. They didn't all look alike. And yet each of them was so critical in accomplishing the greater mission of the kingdom of God. You will not live into your calling if you do not value the kingdom of God above everything else. And you will not value the kingdom of God above everything else unless you have been deeply affected by the gospel. You are affected by the gospel, which causes you to value the kingdom of God, which causes you to discover a unique calling which ultimately leads people to be affected by the gospel, to value the kingdom, to discover unique callings. And it happens over and over and over again. And this is God's design for how his kingdom would expand. This is what Paul is modeling and calling us all into. I'd be remiss if I didn't pause and just say, your vocation does not equal your calling. Your vocation does not equal your calling. Your calling ranks higher than your vocation. That does not mean you should quit your job. <laughs> it does not mean that you should, uh, that I am justifying all the terrible things you've been saying about your boss or your company. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're bad because you love your job. For most of you, your job's going to be your job. It's going to either be the way that you accomplish your calling or a way that helps you, uh, enables you to go after your calling. Um, so I'm not suggesting to you that you need to sort of leave your job. What I'm saying is we need to look at a higher plane. What is it that we're uniquely called to do? And how do we orient everything to accomplish it? Affected by the gospel valuing the kingdom, living into the calling with boldness.
then Paul writes about boasting. Listen to this. Now, here's a man who, if anyone could boast, it would be him. In fact, he wrote in one of his letters, if anyone could boast, it would be me. Uh, Verse 17, Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. Some translations say, therefore I boast in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. So Paul goes off on these radical journeys. People come to faith in Jesus. Miracles happen. And Paul comes back in writing about these things and doesn't say, hey, look what I did. He says it very nuanced, but very specifically and purposely. Look what Christ did through me. It's about boasting in Jesus. For many of us, we're very much oriented to say, look what I did, and this is me too. And Paul would remind us this morning of what it means to say, look what Christ did through me. Now, Paul writes about this over and over again in his letters. And really, there are two large ways that he writes about boasting in Christ, about making sure that we understand this is all about what Jesus does through us, not what we do for God. A lot of us in our religious language talk about that. Well, this is what I'm going to go do for God. Well, we've already read in Romans that if we were going to do something for God, it would be worthless, right? But when we open ourselves up and God does stuff through us, That's the equation that God's talking about. Two areas that Paul talks about through his letters. uh, Power or effort, put those two together, and message. And Paul's always careful to say, this is what Jesus is doing, and I'm just the tool that he's using. Think about the terms of power. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that God's power is most known when I'm weak. And in Philippians, uh, Paul writes that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In the end of Colossians, Paul says that I've worked with all the effort that Christ has put in me. He's very careful to talk about things this way. And then here in Romans, listen to the language he uses. Accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. Now today we read words like that and we think, what does that even mean? Signs and wonders. Um, how, like, what is going on there? Well, we know all through the New Testament, miracles are happening of all kinds and sorts. And there are many ways to understand what's happening there. Some would argue, and I think there's, there's merit in this, that the kingdom of God is just breaking through in these places, and so it's being uh, signified and symbolized by and, and uh, supported through miraculous works of God. So in other words, these are ways in which people are able to believe what's going on. And part of that is absolutely true. But if we leave it at just that, then what we've said is the power that the Spirit had then, he no longer has now. And I think there's an error in that. So you might say, well, why do we see less of those things happening today? Well, one, I would suggest to you that they are happening in places around the world in unbelievable ways, in places where the gospel is breaking forward. But not just because the gospel is breaking forward, can I suggest to you that they're happening in those places 
because the people there are desperate for God to do something. So can we go back to Paul's phrase? I will glory in what Christ has done through me, not what I have done for him. Do you feel sometimes like your Christian life lacks power? Do you feel sometimes like church life lacks power, oomph, move, momentum? I wonder what we've all decided to trust in. For so many of us, it's so easy to trust in our rhythms, to trust in our routines, to trust in our spiritual constructions, to trust in our efforts and our talents. Right? For so many of us in, in a church setting, it's so easy to trust in our vision statement. It's easy to trust in the people that we've hired. It's easy for us to trust in the programs that we've established. It's easy for us to trust in the things that we've already done. But none of that is actually trusting in Christ. I'm not saying that any of those things are bad things. They're just secondary things. They're means by which Christ can accomplish what he intends to. But what if we actually depended upon him in the way that he calls us to? Would words like power and momentum and forward movement be better descriptors of what's happening? Because the Spirit is free to do as he pleases. Then Paul would talk about message. In, second, in 1 Corinthians, just a few pages over, this is what he says to the Corinthians. Uh, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom. Now we know that Paul was a supremely intelligent man and had studied the scriptures endlessly, probably had lots of it memorized uh, in, in his rabbinic and pharisaical training. And yet, here's what he says, I don't have eloquence or human wisdom. As I proclaim to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise or persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but might rest on God's power. And the same thing here in this section in Romans, Paul says that I knew nothing amongst you except the gospel itself. How often do we value the crafted message and or the messenger rather than the one whom the message is intended to be about. So often, we value the message or the messenger far above the one whom the message is about. Can I give you two practical ways that I see this play out almost all of the time? One is people are very afraid to talk to other people about Jesus. Why? Because you have valued the message and the messenger above whom the message is about. Well, I can't get, well, who am I? I can't craft a message, who am I? That was Moses' argument, right? And, and even if I was willing and not afraid to talk about it, what would I say? What if they asked me a theological question that I couldn't answer, right? We value the message and the messenger, not the one to whom the message is about. 
I'm not trying to belittle your fears. Trust me, I understand them. I'm not trying to suggest to you if you love Jesus, you're going to go out and announce the gospel on every street corner from here on out. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is we should understand the roots of some of these things. right? And then vice versa, or not vice versa, but in the same way for people like me, for pastors of churches or people who get up in front of people and teach the Bible all the time, there's a very great fear in owning this reality to yourself, in living in your own talents and abilities, whatever level they might be, your own ability to craft a message, your own ability to stand in front of people and talk, your own ability or gifting to teach whatever levels they might be at, and to come and do something that in in many eyes is good and presentable and effective. But Paul would argue probably, effectively, lacks power because it rests on man and not on the Spirit. So I cover your prayers for me, that when I come to you every week, it's in that way. And it's how I attempt to come in every single way. Knowing that the message that you study for, that you work for, that you attempt to do, ultimately is subservient to what the Spirit intends to say. And what we know the Spirit always wants to talk about is Jesus. John writes that in his Gospel. Jesus says it. The Spirit who comes will testify about me. Will bear witness to me. In many situations in church settings, the church setting really is a personality cult, as it were. It's a cult with a small c, where everything hinges on a pastor, or his presentation, his teaching, his preaching ministry, and everything is about that rather than about the gospel, which is supposed to be the center thing. There's so many ways that these come into play, and Paul would urge us to boast in the right thing. And then lastly, to have big dreams. I love Paul's words. I've done everything I can do over here. There's, or what do he say? There seems to be no more work for me to do over here. Right? Several years ago, my dad, uh, who is a dentist, retired. And he sold his practice. And he was retired, uh, I'm probably getting this time wrong, probably for like three or four months and started working part-time as a dentist again in other people's offices. And then that led up to a regular part-time job and ultimately a full-time job and ultimately led him to move so he could be closer to the office that he worked at, right? And there's some sense of Paul in that, right? And I'm not suggesting to you if you're retired, you should go back to work. But Paul sort of says, I've done everything I can here, and so I'm going to stop. But wait a minute, I have other things I can do over here. And so in Paul's heart, this vision for Spain comes out. This big dream that can't be quenched rises up out of him. That the gospel will go to parts unknown, as it were, to the far west. That Spain would be reached. How often in our lives are we content with the status quo? We've got everything in order here, and we're just going to manage. Maybe Paul would argue to us, what about the big dreams that God wants to raise up in your hearts? What about the Spain that he wants to raise up in your heart? How open to you, how open to that are you? I'll pause for a moment and ask you a question that I love to ask people. If you could be certain that you would not fail. What would you like to see God do through you?
That's Spain to Paul. If you could be certain that you wouldn't fail, what would you like to see God accomplish through you? How would you give yourself to the forward move of the kingdom? How is God uniquely wiring and talented you to accomplish things for the sake of his kingdom? What's next for you? Not what's now, but what's next. You might say, well, how, I, how am I going to resource that? How am I going to do that? How is it going to match my situation? Paul had no idea about this. And the cold, hard truth about it is all his dreams about Spain never happened. But the fact that Spain was there was the main thing. What is it for you? What's next? What's the next step? What's the big thing? What's your Spain? Don't be afraid. Don't be paralyzed by fear. Fear ratchets us to the ground, doesn't it? It it forces us to be so stationary. Failure and success were never intended to be motivators or sustainers or validators. The gospel is both motivator and validator. What is Spain for us as a church? What is Spain for your family? What is Spain for you? What's the next big thing that God's calling you to do? And then look what he says to the church as he finishes up. So in order for me to go for Spain, I'm coming to you. And he says three things that he hopes to find in Rome. First is rest, right? I want to come with you and I want to stay with you for a while and I want my batteries to be recharged. The second is resources. There's certain Greek words that are used there that basically Paul is is, is getting them ready for when he gets there. He's going to ask them to fund this mission to Spain in a very big way, okay? And the third is prayer, and he's big on prayer at the end. Three things he's seeking from this church at Rome to go for his Spain. Rest and community. Resources to accomplish it. And prayer. Friends, this is the vision of hope. Each of you has a unique calling on your life. A unique calling to be a dad or a mom in a certain way that you are. A unique calling to make disciples in unique ways in the neighborhood that only you live in. A unique way to have gospel-oriented connections at the places you work because no one else works there. A unique connections to people that no one else in this room is connected to. You have unique callings from God. I have no higher privilege in my role than to help you discover them and to help you go after them with everything that you have. And then know this, that the vision of this church is to be a place where you can find rest, resources, and prayer. That you can be all that God intended you to be. Go after it hard and have people not just cheering you on from the sidelines, but in the battle with you. Boldness. Right boasting, big dreams. I wonder what would happen in Bethlehem and to the ends of the earth if we got those three things right. And if we really were the kind of church that called that out in each other 
and that supported each other in such an impressive way that made it not only possible, but uniquely probable. Paul's last words to Rome are very challenging words to me. Can I pray with you?